Good morning. Thank you so much for being here today at Bible Baptist Church. We are glad to have you. If you're joining us, uh, maybe you're new for the first or second time, then uh, we want to welcome you. Thank you so much. We are honored that you'd be here with us today, and we're looking forward to what God is going to do. I'm thankful for the chance to, uh, to preach this morning. Let me get my notes here right. Uh, I'm thankful for the chance to preach this morning, and we are honored that you would be here and looking forward to opening God's Word together. I did want to say one thing uh, before we get into the message this morning, and uh, I don't know how many more chances I'll have to have a microphone and your attention, so I want to take this chance right now, uh, and I'm not going to get emotional. I'll try my best, but uh, I want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Um, Alone was next door with the kids, but we want to say thank you to you, church family, uh, for the way that you have loved and supported us over the last couple of weeks. Um, most of you know we're making a move here in July and going to be moving to Vancouver uh, for what God's calling us to do. And we have just been overwhelmed uh, by your love and support for us. So we want to say thank you. And uh, we love you very much. You've uh, showed us what it looks like to have a church family that loves and supports you. And uh, we know we have one that's waiting for us, but we're so grateful we have one that's sending us as well. And so we just want to say thank you for that. All right. Whew. Take your Bible. Turn to Philemon. Turn to the book of Philemon with me this morning. The book of Philemon. The book of Philemon is where we'll be. How many of you know this? That conflict is unavoidable in life. Conflict is unavoidable in life. I wish it was avoidable, but it's not. And here's why conflict is unavoidable. Because we live and we are people. And everywhere that broken, fallen people have opportunity to run shoulder, uh, rub shoulders together is a breeding ground for conflict. It's just the way it is. You want to avoid conflict in your life? Avoid people. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm an introvert. I already do the best I can. <laughs> you want to avoid conflict? Avoid people. But in every marriage, in every family, in every workplace, in every friendship, and in every church, there's going to be conflict. It's just a matter of life. I did a, a Google search this week, and you know how sometimes when you, you Google a word, it'll uh, auto-generate or auto-fill a search. Or it'll show you the most popular searches. So I typed in the word relationship, and the very first suggested search was relationship conflict. Relationship conflict, not relationship goals, not beautiful relationship, nothing like that. Relationship conflict. And there's uh, tens of thousands, probably millions of articles by uh, family specialists and, and therapists and psychotherapists that can help you to, to navigate relational conflict. Because it's something all of us face. It's a real issue. It's in every relationship. It's a huge part of life. And because it's such a huge part of life, the Bible has lots to say about it. And the book that we're going to look at today, it's a short book, but I believe it is a master class on handling conflict in the Christian life. It's a master class. And so what I'd like to do is pray, and then we'll get into the short book, the letter of Philemon this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you are a risen Savior. Lord, we thank you that we can worship you here this morning. We thank you that you're not dead, but that you live. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. And I pray, Lord, that as we look to the scriptures this morning, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, would you strengthen me and fill me with your spirit. Lord, would you make us and mold us to look more like your son because of our time in the word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philemon is the third shortest book in the New Testament. 
followed only or following only second and third John. Philemon is a very personal letter. Uh, it's a Pauline epistle. The Apostle Paul wrote it a letter, and uh, many of his letters were addressed to churches or to uh, groups of Christians, either gathered in one place or scattered over an area. But this letter is quite different. It's, it's a personal letter addressed to uh, primarily an individual. And it's not just personal because of the recipient, but it's, it's personal because of the subject matter. It's personal to Paul, and it's personal to the recipient. It's something that's close to their hearts. In the Greek, where it was originally recorded for us, it's only 22 sentences. That's it. It's a pretty short book. 22 sentences, just six little short paragraphs. And so what I'd like to do this morning is, apart from maybe a couple verses of greeting at the end, we're going to try to cover the whole letter of Philemon. Remember that Philemon would have been written to be read all together. And so we could absolutely split it up, but for sake of time this morning, we're going to try to work through most of it together. And so here's where I'm heading. I'm just going to let you know so you know how to follow along, okay? We're going to walk through the passage, through the verses, verse by verse, and, and uh, draw some understanding and help to build a context and a foundation for what's going on in Philemon. And that might take a little longer than a normal introduction, and so stay with me. Don't get concerned, because really, the whole message boils down to one thing and, and just, just three quick applications, and we're done. But you got to walk with me through the text, okay? Can we do that? All right, let's do it. So let's look together in Philemon, and starting in verse number 1. The Bible says this, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Here we see already the author of the letter, Paul. Many of Paul's letters, he begins like this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But you notice he doesn't do that with the book of Philemon. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So we know that this letter has a bit of a different tone than some of the other letters that Paul writes to churches or to believers. You see, Paul's not uh, approaching them or appealing them on his uh, apostolic authority. He's not like, hey, I'm Paul the apostle and here's what you need to do. He's like, no, Paul, I'm a prisoner. There's a totally different tone right from the very beginning. And you notice that he says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to know that uh, the book of Philemon was written right around the same time as the book of Colossians. And Philemon, the man, he lives in Colossae. He's a part of a church there, a church community. And so, uh, most likely when the letter of Philemon was sent, the letter of Colossians was also sent. Colossae is not a big town. Everyone in Colossae, especially in the faith community, would know the Apostle Paul. And they would know that he's in prison. We know that from reading the book of Colossians. But they would know this. They would know that Paul is a prisoner of Rome. Paul is in Rome, in a Roman prison, and thrown into prison for sharing his faith against the Roman Empire. And so when he says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, all of them would say, wait a second, you're Paul, a prisoner of Rome. But he says, no, I'm not a prisoner of the Romans, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You say, why is that so important? There is a purpose in our trials, and there is a purpose in our pain. And Paul is here in prison, and he knows it is not by accident. He knows he's not there because the Romans want him there. He's there because Jesus Christ wants him there. And there's a purpose for his imprisonment, and it's for the furtherance of the gospel, and, and for the advancement of the kingdom, and maybe just so he could write this letter. And he makes no bones about it. Paul, an apostle, oh, sorry, Paul, a prisoner, not of Rome, but of Jesus Christ. Look at verse, or continuing in verse 1, it says, And Timothy... So Timothy is serving him there unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. So here we have the recipient of the letter, Philemon. 
Paul writing to Philemon. Philemon is a brother in Christ. He's a Christian. He's someone who Paul loves. He's dearly beloved. Throughout the rest of the letter, we'll understand that Philemon is a a homeowner, an estate owner. And we can kind of glean the fact that he's a fairly wealthy one. There's a few reasons for that. One, he has slaves. He has servants who help him serve his estate. And another reason is, is he's got a fairly big house. Because the Bible's going to tell us in a couple verses that there's a church that meets in his house. And so he's a a man of some means. He's got a house with slaves and servants. And he's got a a church that meets in his house. Look at verse 2. It says, And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Most people believe that Aphia would be Philemon's wife and Archippus, perhaps another uh, preacher in the church, or, or maybe even Philemon's son. Look at verse number three. The Bible says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee brother. So here Paul is, is uh, t- sharing his love for Philemon. He's like, hey, I've heard of your love for the Lord and your love for the other saints, and it's encouraging me. We have great joy. Timothy here and I, uh, Timothy and I here in this prison, we have great joy because we hear of your faith and your love, not just towards God, but towards others. There's a, a cool statement in verse 7. He talks about how Philemon has refreshed the saints. At this time, there's no such thing as Airbnb right? There's, a, there's no hotel or motel that uh, traveling ministers can, can stay. And so Philemon, again, having a larger home, he opens his home to refresh the traveling saints and the workers of the ministry. His, hospita- his hospitality has been made known to Paul, and he's encouraging and refreshing the work of the ministry by opening his home, and Paul's like, I'm grateful for that. It gives me great joy. Now, I need to ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard of the sandwich method? Okay, I got a couple. I got a couple. I think may, you might know what I'm talking about when I explain it. The sandwich method. The sandwich method is a method that maybe you've heard your boss or your employer use before. Uh, or maybe a parent. It's when you uh, sandwich a criticism between two compliments. Maybe you've heard it called the hamburger, right? There's a bun, there's a bun, and there's a burger in the middle. And so this, I think, is kind of Paul's version of a biblical sandwich method. He's like, Philemon, I heard of your faith and your love, and it's, it's joyful, it's encouraging to me. But he's going to start to transition to, like, the real reason he's writing the letter. He's going to make a request, an appeal to Philemon. And here's a, a biblical sandwich. An example would be like this, like, hey, uh, you look great today. You have food in your teeth. I like your hair, right? <laughs> you come in, and you look great today. You have food in your teeth. But don't worry, your hair looks great, right? That's a, that's a sandwich, and Paul's going uh, to kind of do this to Philemon, all right? Look at verse number 8. Paul says, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Okay, so he reminds him again, hey, I'm a prisoner. He says, I'm not coming to you as an apostle. As an apostle, I could just tell you and command you what I think you should do, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm making a request of you. I'm making an appeal to you as a prisoner. And there's an awesome phrase at the beginning of verse 9. He says, yet for love's sake. 
He says, Philemon, what I'm going to ask of you, I'm not asking you to do out of duty. I'm not asking you to do out of obligation. I'm asking you to do it out of love. You know, love is the greatest motivation we can ever have in the Christian life. Now, there are times as believers when we follow the Lord simply because we know it's the right thing to do. We follow him out of duty and we follow him out of obligation and responsibility. And there's definitely seasons in life where it's just right to do the right thing even if you don't feel like it. But man, shouldn't we always be striving that we would do everything with a heart of love. Love for God and love for others. As the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all your things be done with charity. Let love be the motivation for everything you do. Jesus taught this to his disciples in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Absolutely, their commandments, they should be followed because of who Jesus was as Lord, but that doesn't always last. That's not the best motivation. Jesus knew the best motivation for his disciples was relationship, was love. If you love me, keep my commandments. And Paul says to Philemon, for love's sake, I'm making a request of you. I also like this. Paul mentions his age. Did you see that? He said, Paul the aged. He's like, it's Paul, the old guy. And I think there's a couple of reasons why he might be doing that. And I don't know for sure, but I think there's a couple of things we could learn there. One, we're talking about managing conflict. And sometimes, doesn't age bring perspective? Age helps us to realize that sometimes the, the bitterness we're holding on to just isn't worth holding on to anymore. And that life is bigger and more important than our hurts. And as we go closer to the end of our life, we realize, man, there's some hatchets that are worth burying. There's some relationships that are worth restoring. And Paul's like, take it from me, the old guy. Another thing he might be saying is, hey, just uh, Philemon, just, just do a solid, do me a solid for the old guy. <laughs> and there's some wisdom in that too, right? Just do a favor for the old guy. Let's look at verse number 10. Paul says, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus who I have begotten in my bonds. Here we're introduced to the third major character of the book of Philemon, or the letter of Philemon, and his name is Onesimus. Onesimus, as you can see in my title slide there, is a runaway slave. The letter teaches us that Onesimus was one time a slave that worked for Philemon. Philemon, the master of the home. And uh, Onesimus has run away from his master Philemon. I'll show you this later in the letter, but I tend to believe that he's not only just run away from his responsibilities, but he's also probably stolen from his master, Philemon. And he runs, and he runs all the way to Rome. And we don't know exactly how, but he runs into the Apostle Paul in his bonds in the prison in Rome, and he gets saved. It's so cool. Maybe he was sweeping the floors, or maybe he was working the night shift, or maybe he did a little stint in jail himself. I don't know. But somehow he meets Paul in prison, and Paul shares the gospel with him, and he gets saved. We see that, he says, uh, in verse 10, he says, Whom I have begotten. He's a son in the faith to me now. I'm a father in the faith to him in my bonds in prison. I want you to think about this. Onesimus was a slave in a Christian man's home. A man who would open his doors for traveling uh, missionaries and preachers. A man who had a church that met in his home. I mean, what an opportunity for a slave, an unsaved slave, to hear the gospel in his master's home. But we don't know that, we don't see that he accepts the gospel. In fact, he rejects the gospel. He runs away. He steals. And we might be like, in that situation, oh, that's it for Onesimus. He had a chance. He heard the gospel. He got a front row seat to what God was doing in the church here in Philemon's house. But he ran away. But that's not the end of the story for Onesimus. And you may feel like you have a loved one who's run away. 
And maybe they're not uh, under the preaching of the gospel, or maybe they're not uh, in a place where you'd love them to be, but you see how God is leading his life, and even though he runs from his past, and he runs from his shame, and he runs from his sin, he runs right to Rome and runs into the Apostle Paul. God works in really cool ways. And he comes face to face with the gospel. Look at verse number 11. The Bible says, Which in times past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Paul knows all about Onesimus' past. He says, hey, I know he stole from you. I know he was useless to you, but I'm telling you, he's profitable to you again, and he's profitable to me. Something's different here. And notice, this is not just a cop-out for Paul. Look at verse 12. He says, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Now, this is not what's happening. This is not like when you encourage your annoying coworker to take the job opportunity at another business or another uh, another, uh, team at your workplace. Like, no, no, I think you'd be a great fit. You should take the job. (laughs) Please. That's not what's going on here. Paul's not like, yeah, sure, Onesimus, yeah, go back to Philemon. That'd be great. Woo, wash my hands of him. He's like, no, look, I would love to retain him. I'd love to keep him. He could be a help to me. He could serve me here in my bonds. But I'm sending him back to you. And I'm not just sending you Onesimus, but he says, I'm sending you someone that I love. Notice the phrasing there. It's a little weird, but he says at the end of verse 12, that is mine own bowels, (laughs) which is his inner parts, his heart. He loves him. Now, we wouldn't say it like that. I don't think Aloma would be super flattered if I was like, oh, Aloma, she's my bowels. (laughs) She'd be like, eh. Maybe not the best, right? But that's what he's saying. He's saying, I love him. I'm not just passing him off to you. He's someone that I love and is profitable to me, but I'm, I'm sending him back to you. Would you receive him? Look at verse 14. The Bible says, But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. Here's that theme again. He said, I'm not, I'm not forcing you to do it. I don't want you to do it out of necessity. I want you to want to do it. I want you to be willing to receive him back. Now, notice verse 15. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever. This is super cool. Notice the word perhaps. Paul's like, I don't really know. But maybe the reason God allowed him to leave you in the first place is that you could be away for a short time and then restored to relationship forever. Not just as a master and a slave on this earth, but as a Christian brother for all of eternity. Perhaps that's the exact reason why God allowed him to run away in the first place. It reminds me of the language we see in the book of Esther when Mordecai says, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's like, I don't know, Esther, who knows, but maybe this is the exact reason God has you here. Maybe God's working all the details of your crazy life out for this exact reason. Or what about Joseph when he says, hey, you meant it unto me for evil, but God meant it unto good. To save many people alive. Sometimes we don't see the circumstances of our life. We don't see how God's working it out. But Paul's like, hey, perhaps maybe God's doing that. Maybe that's exactly why God let him leave is so that you could be restored forever. Look at verse 16. He says, now, not, as a, not now as a servant, but above a servant. A brother, beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He says, Philemon, receive him now, not just as a slave again, but as a brother in Christ. Man, I receive him as a brother, but to you, he's now a part of your physical household again, and now a part of your spiritual household. Receive him back. 
Now, verse 17, this is really the key. So notice it with me. Paul says this, If thou count me, therefore, a partner, receive him as myself. If he wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own selves. This is the key here. And this is why I believe that there's a likely chance that Onesimus has stolen from Philemon. He says, hey, uh, Philemon, I want you to accept him, not as you'd receive him, but I want you to receive him and host him and welcome him as if it were me. And if he's taken something from you, if he owes you something, if there's a debt that he has, I want you to charge it to my account. He might not be able to pay it, but I'll pay it for him. You welcome him the way that you would welcome me. Paul intercedes and mediates on Onesimus' behalf and says, welcome him, restore him the way you would restore me. Now look at verse 20, and we're almost done walking to the text. He says, yea, brother, let me have joy in thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. He's like, hey, uh, you've refreshed the saints. Now encourage my heart by doing what's right. Verse 21, having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. He's like, finally, I know you're going to do the right thing. I got confidence in you. And you're not just going to do what I've asked you to do. You're going to do far beyond because I know the kind of man that you are. And then I like this. We'll finish in verse 22. He says, but with all, prepare me also a lodging. For I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. He's like, well, people are praying that I get out of prison. And when I get out of prison, I'm coming to see you. And so uh, hopefully Onesimus is there. Hopefully you've done the right thing. But have a place ready for me because I'm coming to see you. Okay. You've done very well. We've walked through the text. And hopefully we have a foundational understanding of the main characters and what's going on in this story. And I'm going to give you the message right here. This is it. It's two words. Don't miss it. Here's the message of Philemon. The gospel. That's the message of Philemon. You see, I thought you said it was a master class in conflict resolution. It is. Because of the message of the gospel. Let's look at it together three things, and we'll be done this morning. Number one, notice a picture of the gospel. Notice the picture of the gospel. Now, I believe this is one of the most beautiful and colorful pictures of the gospel in the New Testament, apart from Jesus Christ himself. Paul, the apostle, uh, actually, you know, let's back up a little bit. Here's what you need to know to understand this. Now, Colossae at the time was under Roman law, Onesimus is under Roman law. And so when he escapes and runs away and is a fugitive slave, he has to face the penalty of that according to Roman law. Here's what that penalty uh, could include. Whipping, beating, flogging, death. And if uh, Philemon was feeling maybe generous, then all it would perhaps uh, entail would be a brand across your forehead that said fugitive. So everyone in that small town of Colossae would always know, not that they didn't know already, but they would always know that there's Onesimus, runaway slave. There's Onesimus, fugitive. There's Onesimus, sinner, guilty, marked by his past, always. That's what he's walking back to. That's what he's facing under Roman law. Imagine, imagine being Onesimus. And Paul's like, hey man, I'm going to send you back to Philemon. <laughs> uh, okay. No, I think you need to go back to Philemon. Imagine the fear and, and the anxiety and the panic along that journey, knowing what he was going back to face. Imagine bringing yourself to walk up the driveway and knock on the door of your master's house. Imagine. I like to think he maybe did one of these where he was like, okay, here's the letter. 
and then hid. Ooh, that was loud. And then hid to see if Philemon would come, right? Maybe Nicky Nicky Nine Door. I don't know what he did. But imagine the fear. But here's the cool thing. Philemon, sorry, Onesimus did not go back to Philemon alone. Physically he did. But he went with the company of another. He carried a letter. He carried Paul with him. And he carried Paul, his support with him. You see, Onesimus was going back to face his master. But Paul said this, hey, Philemon, when you see this guilty, runaway, fugitive slave, I don't want you to seat him. I don't want you to treat him like you treat a fugitive. I don't want you to treat him like you treat a runaway. I want you to treat him like you would treat me. I want you to treat him like a fellow laborer, a beloved brother. I want you to look at the, the, the guilty slave, and I want you to see me. I want you to forgive him for love's sake, and I want you to forgive him for my sake. And on top of that, if he has any debt, he can't afford to pay it, put it on my account. I'll pay it. Does it start to sound familiar at all? You see, we were all like Onesimus, dead in our trespasses and sins, guilty. And one day, each of us will face our master, our creator God, and we'll have to give an account for our sins, for transgressing and breaking his law. And we are all guilty. The Bible says that the penalty, the wages the, uh, of, de- of sin is death. We have a debt on our account of death that we could never pay for ourselves. But Jesus, God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. Listen to this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Bible says, For he, God, hath made Jesus, him, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. Just like Paul says, when you look at him, I want you to see me. God says, hey, if you're in Christ, when I look at you and your sin, I don't see it anymore. I see the righteousness of Christ on your account. He no longer sees our sins. We're no longer strangers or foreigners. The Bible says in John chapter 1, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Romans 8, 34, the Bible says, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, is risen again, who is at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Christ was our mediator. Our, he makes intercession for us between us and our Father, so that we who are guilty sinners can stand before a holy God and say, hey, I'm not worthy because of my own righteousness, but I'm worthy because of Christ's righteousness on my account. Christ said, you have a debt you could never pay, but I'll pay it. And he went to the cross for us. And here Paul is giving us a living example of the gospel. He says, when you look at this slave, see me. When, when, when it's time for him to pay his dues, put it on my account. That's what Jesus did for us. A beautiful picture of the gospel. But I want you to notice, number two, the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. This is one of the coolest things in the text to me. Look at verse number 11. The Bible says, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Here's something really cool uh, about the Greek language here. Uh, Onesimus' name means profitable. That's what his name means. It literally, when you call him Onesimus, you're calling him profitable or useful. And so Paul is doing like a little play on words here. Imagine uh, what Onesimus' nickname would have been at Philemon's house. Imagine the humor and the irony that the guy whose name is useful ran away. 
like useful. We call them useless around here, right? I'm sure that was the rhetoric. Sometimes you can get funny nicknames. Sometimes we get nicknames that are true uh, and accurate reflections of ourselves, and sometimes we get nicknames that aren't, right? This is a nickname that's totally opposite to who he is. I'm going to tell you a quick story. Pastor Stone's here. When I first came on, on staff uh, and worked with the young people, the teenagers, Pastor Stone wanted them to call me uh, Brother Tyrrell, which you can already see is a whole lot of hard R sounds and a whole lot of consonants. It just doesn't run off the tongue very well, right? Brother Tyrrell. And so pretty quickly, I had to get a nickname, all right? And so some of you would know this. Some of the older teenagers would know this. The young adults know. The teens started to call me BLT, Brother Levi Tyrrell. And they called me BLT. And so it sort of stuck. And so uh, over the months, everyone would call me BLT. And some, some teens started to come to the program who only knew me as BLT. And I started to realize that they don't even know my name. They just know that I'm BLT. And so one night, one of the teens says, hey, what does BLT stand for? And in that moment, I made a crucial mistake, a critical error. I said, well, why don't you tell me what you think it stands for? <laughs> oh, boy. And she said, well, I think it stands for Big <laughs> Levi Tubby. <laughs> oh, man. It just killed me. Ripped my heart out. That's an example of getting a nickname that's pretty accurate, all right? That's, that's a pretty accurate nickname, Big Levi Tubby, all right? But this, in Scripture, would be like if somebody called me Tiny, right? Hey, Tiny. They're making a joke. It's the opposite of what I am. And here we see that useful, profitable, is the joke of the town. He's the joke of the household. He's the least profitable, profitable guy I've ever met, Right? And Paul makes a play on words. He says, hey, I know that you tease him. I know you joke about him. I know he's not profitable or useful to you anymore. But I'm telling you, he's not the same Onesimus that left. He's different. And he's profitable to you again. And he's profitable to me again too. You say, how? Because he met Jesus. And if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He says, hey, he's not the guy who left anymore profitable is profitable again to you. Not just to me, but to you. In your household, yes, but as a family member in the kingdom of God. Receive him. And maybe you're here today and you, you feel a little bit like Onesimus. Maybe you're running from your past. Maybe there's some sins in your, your past that you would love to hide from. Can I, can I encourage you with this? That the gospel can transform you. That if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, he wants to make you new and save you from your sins and allow you to be reconciled to God. And he'll completely transform you so you can look back at your past and look back at your sin and look back at your shame and say, that's not who I am anymore. I'm a new creature in Christ, just like Onesimus had been made new in Jesus Christ. And so we see the power of the gospel to transform. And lastly this morning, I want you to notice the practice of the gospel. So what does it mean for us? What does it look like to live differently this week because of these truths? I think it looks like two things. Number one, to share the message of the gospel is to practice the gospel. You see, if we've been saved and we've been reconciled and brought back to a relationship with God, we now have a responsibility to share the message of the gospel with others. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 18, the Bible says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. 
You see, those who have been reconciled to God now have a ministry, now have a job to do, now have a work to accomplish. And that's to share the word of reconciliation, to let everyone know, hey, be reconciled to God. You're a sinner, you're a fugitive, you're guilty, but God loves you. Jesus died for you and you can be made righteous because of what Christ did for us on the cross. That's what it looks like to practice the gospel. Who are you telling? Who are you sharing? How seriously are you taking your responsibility of the ministry of reconciliation? It's a, it's a calling that God has given to each and every single one of us. A ministry. But secondly, I think it looks like this to practice the gospel. I want you to notice. Notice that the, the relationships that changed was absolutely Onesimus and God. They were reconciled. But it wasn't just that. It was that the gospel changes our relationships horizontally too. Onesimus had been reconciled to God, but now he's reconciled back to Philemon. How cool is that? That a a master and a slave in the first century Roman Empire would be brothers. That's the power of the gospel. We're not just reconciled to God, but through the power of the gospel and forgiveness, we're reconciled to each other. Because the gospel transforms all of our relationships. Not just our relationship with our Father in heaven, but every relationship we have in this life. And that's why I say that Philemon is a master class in conflict resolution. Because you can't overcome conflict and you can't practice forgiveness until you've first been reconciled to God. And then you can be reconciled to each other. Practicing the gospel looks like forgiving and reconciling and restoring relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. For love's sake. Can I remind you of this? Forgiven people forgive people. Reconciled people reconcile with people. It's not that we have to forgive others to be saved. It's that a true mark of those who are forgiven is that they practice forgiveness. So how can we practice the gospel? We can forgive others. We can reconcile with others. We can be in unity in this place because of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. Consider the words of Ephesians 4, 32. The Bible says, And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. God did not forgive you because you deserved it. He didn't forgive me because I deserved it. He he forgave me for Christ's sake because of what Christ has done. And if God can forgive us, who have sinned against him and broken his law and transgressed against him because of what Christ did, then I can forgive others. And you can forgive others. There's nothing someone can do to you that's worse than what we have done to Christ. And yet he forgave us for love's sake, for Christ's sake. And so I encourage you, church, for love's sake, for Christ's sake, practice the gospel. Practice forgiveness. Practice reconciliation. Because the gospel transforms all of our relationships. Will you forgive one another? What family member has hurt you? What coworker has slighted you? What friend has excluded you? What pastor has let you down? Will you, for love's sake, practice the gospel? Practice forgiveness? That's a message of the book of Philemon. You know this, we're never more like Jesus than when we're forgiving wrong and reconciling relationships. That's a great way to be like Jesus, is to practice the gospel. And so as we close this morning, the application to you and the call to response is is very simple. It's really two things. Number one, will you respond to the gospel? Have you ever been reconciled to God? 
Has there been a time in your life where you've come to Jesus Christ and put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins and to be restored to a relationship with the creator God who loves you? Do you know for sure you have a relationship with God and a home in heaven? If you haven't, can I encourage you today to be reconciled to God? He loved you so much he sent his son Jesus to take the penalty for your sin. He said, hey, they can't pay for it, but I'll pay for it for them. Today, would you come to Christ? Would you respond to the gospel? Secondly, Christian, will you practice the gospel? This week, will you share the message? Will you practice forgiveness? Will you be reconciled to each other? It's Easter coming up in a couple weeks. It's a great time to share the message. It's a great time to tell others about the difference Christ has made in your life. It's a great time to find someone in this church or in your family or at your workplace and say, hey, I'm sorry I was wrong. Hey, I'm going to bury the hatchet. Hey, I, I, I've been holding this against you, but... God forgave me for Christ's sake so I can forgive you because of what Christ has done. Is it time to practice the gospel? Do you need to respond to the gospel? Be reconciled to God and will you practice the gospel today? Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the book of Philemon. Thank you for a beautiful, clear picture of the Apostle Paul living out the gospel. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who does not know you as their personal Savior, that today they would be reconciled to you. And Lord, for those who are your children here, I pray that we would be leaving here resolved to live the gospel, to practice the gospel, to share it with others, and to forgive others because we have been forgiven. We pray all this in, in Jesus' name.